millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today we're diving into a very light subject, <laughs> nationalism. Very light. Before we do, we realize that we've got rookie numbers on our reviews compared to the number of listeners we have, and we got to get those numbers up. So we would love more reviews. Hey, if you've listened to the 65th episode and have listened to a whole bunch, it would be great if you could leave a review telling the world how much you love us. Just go to your favorite podcatcher and leave a review. So, yeah, today we're talking about nationalism, which, as everyone knows, is a, a light subject. We decided after, you know, six months of economics, we'd uh, step back a little bit and just have some fun. Uh, oh, wait, it's not actually like that, is it, Eric? No, nationalism is getting a pretty bad rap right now in Europe, in the United States, and it's sort of rearing its ugly teeth. And it's not entirely without justification that it gets a bad rap. However. If we understand the context and history ah, of nationalism, we realize it's actually a bit of a tricky subject. It's got two sides of a coin. There are perhaps even good things about nationalism. And history is going to help us understand nationalism a lot better, where it comes from, why it's there, kind of why it's hard to get rid of. And so today we're going to discuss what nationalism is, what are some of the common contemporary narratives surrounding what nationalism is. So after a quick bit of history, we're going to do a case study in the Balkans and then have an opportunity to reconsider. But first things first, Xander, what is nationalism? Right. And it's important to remember that there is no single definition of nationalism. So we'll, we'll lay out some general ideas, but nationalism isn't a single thing, is a conglomeration of lots of different ideas. But at a very high level, conventionally, nationalism has been identification with one's own nation and the support for one, one's own nation's interests, especially to the exclusion and sometimes the detriment of the interests of other nations. It can also mean advocacy or support for, say, political independence of a particular nation or a particular people. So, for example, there was a Vietnamese nationalist movement in the 1970s that was really about Vietnam getting to rule itself, the right to self-rule as opposed to rule by others, which it was at risk of because of, well, lots of reasons. But then, of course, there are sort of like, quote unquote, extreme forms of nationalism. And we all probably have some ex examples of that in mind. For example, when someone thinks that their particular nation or their particular people is superior in some sort of intrinsic ways to others and therefore has 
rights to rule others in a, in a certain way. So that 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 is sort of a form of extreme nationalism, if you want to call it that. And nationalism, like other isms, has always been a thing, like always. So these groupisms about I have a group and someone else has a group have always been a part of human history. And there's this thing we've discussed before called in-group, out-group theory. And the idea is that you have an in-group, you identify with that group, and they're basically your family, your tribe, and outside of that is a different tribe. And you want to help the people in your tribe, you identify with them. And the history behind in-group, out-group theory is that most people think it's actually an evolutionary tendency that was a survival trait. Because if you, you know, if you were just too independent and just thought of yourself as the only important thing, you'd die because you needed friends. But the tribes that sort of formed into groups and competed with other tribes aggressively for resources were the ones that survived over the tribes that said, hey, mate, you want to share my my tapir steak or something? Because the groups that thought of themselves as a single group competing with them would say, thanks for the steak, club them over the head, take the steak and move on. So they're the ones that survived. This tapir steak, of course, particularly tough steak, Eric. Yeah, I'm just actually, what I'm thinking of is 2001, A Space Odyssey, in which we had those two groups of apes. This was the Rise of Man part at the beginning, in which one of them figures out how to use a bone to club things over the head. And the first thing they start clubbing over the head, or I'm pretty sure these tapers, or tappers, I don't know how to pronounce them, but they're running around and, and you see them thunk one over the head, and now they're eating meat. And they're strong, and then they go thump some other apes over the head, and they win. Actually, 2001 A Space Odyssey is the beginning of isms. That is where in-group, out-group theory comes from, is that moment in history. By the way, it's a great movie. Go watch it. Now, we've also talked about in-group, out-group theory in the context of wedging, right? So that's why you've heard it before. You can't have wedging without tribes that you're getting wedged into. And so obviously in-group, out-group theory goes berserk sometimes and bad things happen. But if you have an in-group and an out-group, how do you define who's in and who's out? And there's no one way, right? There's a multitude of group identities that are all overlapping, intersecting, and you tend to gravitate towards some more than others, right? In Wedged, we talk about gravitating towards political tribes that are good and, and the other one is evil. And in different contexts, you care about different identities for your in-group. So today, in our global political system, we typically think about your citizenship. That is a national identity. I happen to be American. That's who I am. But national identity, as we know it, didn't always exist. And there have been and still are, you know, many other types of identities. Religion is another easy example that's still applicable today. Right. So if we want some other examples of self-identity that don't have maybe as much to do with a national state in the modern sense, we can look back in history at the ancient Greeks, the Persians, the ancient Chinese. All of these peoples saw themselves as distinct and at one point or another saw all the people around them as barbarians. But even if you drill down into, say, the ancient Greek city-states of like the 5th century BC, Athenians saw themselves as quite distinct from Spartans or Corinthians or Corsirans. And these Greeks from different city-states were really only willing to work together to beat the Persians. And once that was done, the Athenians and Spartans 
got to quick work killing each other. So identities can work sort of on these different levels. And if you look at somewhat more recent European history, you can clearly see examples of identity being motivated by religion, right? The Muslim conquests, the crusades that were really a response to the Muslim conquests as the caliphate ate into European territory in Byzantium and Italy and Spain, the the wars of reformation. So when the Protestants came up and said, you know, actually, I don't know about this whole Catholicism thing. You seem to be, why can't I also read the Bible? Why does it have to be in Latin? That created a an identity crisis essentially within the Catholic Church. It's how you get, you know, the Protestant faith, faith today. And it, it fired people up because on one side, the Catholics, there was clearly a right way and wrong way of doing religion. And the Protestants, on the other hand, saw an imposed way and a free way. So you have these different types of, of group identities throughout history that aren't necessarily related to a nation. And so what we think of today as nationalism didn't actually really exist until the 1800s. And, you know, maybe you can argue it really got going during the French Revolution, in which the French people started to think of themselves as a people and that the and not subjects of a king who happened to rule over a certain area. But we are French. And so there's actually this distinction that happened during the beginning parts of the revolution in which the king switched from being the king of France to king of the French. So France was no longer the king's place. It was that the king was the guy who the French people kind of approved of running the show. And that was a big change. And then a lot of people died. (laughs) Summary. That's the summary version. (laughs) That's basically the French Revolution in a nutshell. But it was really the revolutions of the 19th century, so the 1800s, that created the modern notion of nationalism. You know, if we look back again, there were all these states that existed with all sorts of like demographic groups under them that really didn't mind. Or if they did, they didn't get organized about it. So the Ottoman Empire ruled over a huge swath of people. The Byzantine Empire, even the the Roman Empire as we knew it, incorporated people over and over again into becoming Roman that were of many different ethnicities. And even the Chinese empire, demographics didn't matter that much. Now, we might say, oh, China, that's all about like being Chinese. But, you know, in my understanding of the history, what happened was the Chinese would kind of incorporate new territories that used to be seen as different. And then all of a sudden, as soon as they were part of it, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're Chinese now. And they said, great, we're totally Chinese now. Let's all be Chinese together. Isn't this wonderful? And so the demographics didn't actually matter as much as the fact that you were like being Chinese with all the Chinese. And of course, the Ottomans and Byzantines were glued together in part, you know, largely by religion. And the Roman Empire was glued together just by like, you know, being Roman, SPQR, baby. Right. And then in the Middle Ages, as a peasant, you largely just didn't care too much about which lord or baron or emperor ruled over you. I mean, you did about them being a person who was like, you know, good to you or awful to you, but you didn't go, hey, that baron doesn't look or sound too much like me. Now I have a problem. And part of the reason for that is that there weren't nation states. It just wasn't a thing. Borders, as we at the time were very fluid and were actually about what lord had like custody or fealty over that land. And that actually changed with inheritance all the time. So even the French king like the French king was king of all of these essentially earls 
who owned territory and it would get moved around a lot, but they weren't king of France. They were king of these, of these earls. you know, they, the earls had fealty to the king. And of course there are exceptions to this all over the place. So for example, in England, the whole nobility speaks French thing got unpopular under King John and Henry the third enough to spark a revolution and a bunch of xenophobia. But even then it was, it was largely about language and distance more than like an ethnic group of being English versus being French. Cause the French people, you know, the Normans that were in England speaking English were totally fine with the Anglo-Saxons also there speaking English. So if you're racking your head a little bit and you're kind of saying, okay, well, if nation states haven't always existed, what exactly is a nation state? Because today the phrase nation state is more often than not synonymous with country. But really nation state, you can break that into two terms, nation and state. The state at a very high level is essentially the administrative area where some bureaucracy rules over or governs that area, and a nation is a particular type or group of peoples. So a nation state, again, high level, means that these territorial boundaries over which an administrative bureaucracy governs is contiguous with where a particular group of peoples lives. And today that's basically a country. But it was in the 1800s that this idea of a nation of peoples really got going. So you had these big sprawling empires at the time. You had the Austrian Empire, which turned into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Earlier, you had the Holy Roman Empire, which basically dissolved when Napoleon kicked it in the mouth really hard. You had the Russian Empire. You had the Ottoman Empire. (laughs) (laughs) Napoleon's like, no, no, mine. Bam! So these these big empires were multi-ethnic. There were several different ethnic groups within them. For different reasons, they they weren't really cutting it anymore. And different groups of people, of peoples within those empires really had these mass awakenings of their identities. So you had Italian nationalism and the formation of Italy in the 19th century. You had Croatian and Hungarian and Serbian nationalism, of course, French nationalism and the French Revolution. And then there was all the other French revolutions, you know, like the 1830s and 1848. You had Germany, which didn't become a state. It was not Germany did not exist before 1871. It was the Prussians and the Bavarians and the Saxons. And all of these people started to think of themselves as a single group. So the big idea was essentially that you had the right to be governed by people of your group and not the people of another group imposing their will upon you. So the Ottoman Empire course, was governed by the Ottomans, the Turks. So we're even in the Balkans, although Turks made up maybe 15 to 20 percent of the population, mainly in cities, they controlled the Balkans. So the people who live there, for the most part, the majority of the people in the Balkans didn't control their, their own area in which they lived. The revolutions of 1848, the Mexican Revolution of the early 20th century, all of the South American revolutions of the, the 19th century were really all about some form of nationalism, the right to self-governance. In, in South America, for example, Simon Bolivar led the effort to throw the, the Spanish yoke off, the Spanish empire that had controlled all of South America since the 16th century, and tried to create new South American states. Although interesting, Simon Bolivar at different times had different ideas of what that state should look like, uh, but it, 
it turned into, in one way or another, a lot of the states that we have today. Note also that Brazil uh, was colonized by the Portuguese rather than the Spanish. So that's sort of its own thing. Yeah, so I think the thing that I really love that I, or that I find telling about the South American Revolution was that you had a single, you know, American empire that the Spaniards held, you know, sort of accepting Brazil, of course, which is held by the Portuguese. And Simon Bolivar was this beloved hero who had thrown off the Spanish. He said, great, we're basically going to be like one to four big happy families. These like super states of of like mixed peoples of, of you know, European, Spanish and, and native descent. And it's going to be cool, right? But people had already formed these regional group identities. And so the nationalism that he had sparked in them actually wasn't you know, wasn't the one he wanted. He wanted them to all think of themselves as essentially Americans and we we just all get along. And they said, nope, nope, nope. We want our own countries. You know, buzz off, Simon. You've done your job. Thank you. And he actually like died bitter and depressed because he didn't create one super state in South America. But that's what nationalism does. It makes people go like, okay, this is my group now where Bolivians, where Colombians, where Venezuelans and and we're going to rule us and buzz off anyone else. And so this process of nationalism or nationalizing of different peoples was sort of reached its peak in the codification and glorification at the end of World War I by United States President Woodrow Wilson's right to self-determination, which the Europeans loved, and it led to a lot of nations being born or reborn. The Austro-Hungarian Empire dissolved, Poland and the Baltics and Ukraine and Belarus showed up on the map again where they weren't there before. And the map after World War I is actually pretty darn close to the map of Europe we know and love today, whereas before that, it looked nothing like it. And so at this point, nationalism was actually seen as this beautiful, wonderful thing that like, look, the Croats get to be ruled by Croats. And the Poles get to be ruled by Poles, not by Russians. Man, this nationalism thing, it's going to work out great. And then also, after World War II, nationalism led to the end of colonialism, which people generally agree was a good idea. You know, more or less, it led to the end of colonialism. So, for example, India said, hey, we're Indians. Get out of here, Brits. And they got some salt. And then the Brits left. Algeria, there was a big fight. And then the French left. Vietnam had a big fight and kicked out the French. And the French said, hey, America, can you help us keep this? And he said, yeah, maybe, sure. And then they kicked the Americans out. And the Laotians and Cambodians were like, great, we'll we'll hop on this party too. And so there are all these famous and sometimes bloody, sometimes not, examples of an awakening of a national identity where people throw off the yoke of the outsider and they define a contiguous territory that says mostly people that look like me and talk like me and share my customs, live in this area, and we will rule ourselves. And man, that makes nationalism sound not so bad. Enter the Balkans. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. First off, where is the Balkans? Uh, it's in Southeast Europe, man. It's between, you know, like, Czech Republic and, I mean, depending on whether you define Bulgaria is in it, but, like, Czech Republic and Romania to the north, and, you know, Greece is maybe in it, but Greece and Turkey to the south. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of what's north of Greece. Interestingly, the Balkans is a phrase that only came about in the 19th century when, and as I understand it, European travelers to the Balkans began referring to the area as the Balkans because there was a mountain range called the Balkan Mountain Range. Before that term came about, it was just called Turkey and Europe. 
Why? Because it was a province governed by the Ottoman Empire, and it was in Europe. So it was Turkey's part or the Ottomans' part of Europe. I would have never guessed. I know, right? I'm reading a very interesting book about Balkan history. Now, why talk about the Balkans? Well, major, major conflicts start in the Balkans, including World War I. And since World War II is really arguably just a continuation of World War I, we can say that the biggest conflicts in human history grew out of conflicts that began in the Balkans. And as we're going to see, the seed of those Balkan conflicts was the emergence of nationalism in the 19th century. So th- this line that I have come across, I'm listening to a, a podcast I just discovered called The History of Yugoslavia, which is about the Balkans. It's actually quite good. I would recommend it if you're interested in this stuff. The guy who narrates it has uh, a very appealing approach to introducing this history. And he, he said that, in essence, the idea of Serbian nationalism, and Serbia is a country in the Balkans, was... Wherever there lives a Serb, there lies Serbia. And that, that was the essence of Serbian nationalism that emerged in the 19th century. And as we're going to see, that what at first may seem like a beautiful concept, Serbia is within us, it is wherever we are, had really major ramifications and continues to have major ramifications even up modern day. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there are Serbs in the United States and that wouldn't fly so well. They're like, oh, his house, Serbia, deal with it. Yeah, exactly. The U.S. isn't going to let a group of Serbians within the U.S. secede and form their own country, right? Clearly, you're beginning to see that there are implications to this idea. Now, in addition to World War I, there was also a very bloody war fought in the 1990s as Yugoslavia, which was a federation of many Balkan countries, dissolved. And really, this conflict grew in part from the idea of Serbian nationalism, that the Serbian nation lies wherever Serbs live. So, and it turns out that Serbs don't just live in a happy, contiguous place that is just Serbs and no one else. They live in places that are dominated by Bosnians and places that are dominated by Croatians. And so, you know, in this war, side note, the the Croatians, who, by the way, now that Uruguay is out, Croatia is my new bandwagon. At time of recording, I've not seen the final yet, but go Croatia. The Croatians call this period their War of Independence, in which they declared independence from Yugoslavia. And from their perspective, what they had to do was fight the Serbs to maintain their territorial integrity, because the Serbs were going, hey, look, there's some Serbs living there, and and they have to be in Serbia, so we're going to come take that territory. And the Croatians like, holy crap, no, we've got a whole bunch of Croatians living here. You can't just have it. And then a lot of people died. And this meant that as Yugoslavia dissolved and Yugoslavia was a sort of enforced feder- like communist federation of Slavic states in this kind of proto-nationalistic period where basically the bright idea was like, oh, we're all Slavic. Like, that's totally our identity. It's not Croat. It's not Bosnia. It's not. So we're just Slavs. So we're just all going to live together and get along, you know, kind of in the same vein as Simon Bolivar, but super communist although not actually allied with Soviet Union. Fascinating history, definitely worth reading. But anyway, this thing dissolves, and the Serbs that lived outside of the like the thing that popped out, that was Serbia. So like a bunch of countries popped out. One of them was Serbia and had these borders. And some Serbs lived outside of Serbia, and they felt very threatened because what had happened was the, the dictatorship had been lifted, and now they were like very isolated in these other countries. They wanted to be part of Serbia, 
But of course, how could you be part of Serbia if you lived in Croatia? And so very quickly, these pre-existing borders that were drawn upon the dissolution became very fuzzy and not everyone loved them. So this heterogeneous mix was especially the case in the Republic of Bosnia. You had Bosniaks, which were Bosnian Muslims, Bosnian Serbs, and Bosnian Croats. You're beginning to see the complexity of this. When the Bosnian War began in 1992, the, the whole situation devolved into really a very brutal war with incidences of genocide as Bosnian Serbs and Serbian Serbs worked together to fight the Bosniaks, the Bosnian Muslims. However, some people identified more with the Bosnian state, the Republic of Bosnia, than they did with their own national identity. So within the Bosnian army, you actually had Bosnian Serbs working with Bosnian Muslims to fight other Bosnian Serbs who were fighting with Serbian Serbs. And it was just very hard Ooh. to follow all of this, right? Yeah, and and so, you know, how did people pick their lines, right? So some of their, for some people, their national identity was more ethnic. For some of them, it was more religious. And, and for some of them, it was, hey, I've lived here and these are my neighbors. So, you know, a lot of it came down to picking your identity, but a lot of it came down to fear. You know, what could happen to you if this other group was in control and you were a minority, right? And the Balkans had a pretty dark history of one group killing the other, and it goes around on many sides. And so given this history, there was this like legitimate fear that, you know, what you want is for the people who think of you as like them to be the ones who had the police force and the army rather than people who think of you as different and have all these like kind of historical grievances against your people. Those things tend not to work out so well for you. And so Balkan nationalism drove or your senses of Balkan nationalism drove, you know, this this war in the 90s. But it turns out that it's really anything but a local affair. World War I, which we all know and love, which determined the course of the events of the entire 20th century. It began in the Balkans, of course. And, you know, Serbia was at that point a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which sided with Germany. And there were movements in Serbia to gain independence, right? After they, you know, after the 1848 revolts had been put down, they were like back in the early 20th century. And so as part of that movement, when an Austro-Hungarian prince was visiting what had been at that time the Serbian province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, this prince being Franz Ferdinand, who you might know as the great English band, but also was an Austro-Hungarian prince, was killed by a Serbian nationalist named Gavrilo Princip. And as a result of this assassination of Franz Ferdinand, for a number of really complicating reasons that we're, we're actually not going to get into the nitty-gritty of, World War I started. So clearly World War I did not start because of this assassination, but the assassination was an outgrowth of Balkan conflicts, which is a big part of how the alliance structure in Europe formed that led to the war. Now, suffice it to say that the Austro-Hungarians, the Russians, and the Ottomans had all been competing over the course of about 200 years leading up to World War I in the Balkans. The Balkans bordered all of these different empires so they were kind of this buffer space where, you know, if one side got too close to the other, the other side felt, felt threatened. So it was an area of really intense competition. And in part, this is why ultimately you got nationalists saying, you know what, I'm tired of being 
the territory that you guys trot over to go fight each other. I want to rule myself. I, I don't want to deal with this anymore. This is also why you have Catholic Croats, because Croatia was at one point part of the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire. You have Muslims in the Balkans because of the Ottoman rule. And then you also have Orthodox Christians in the Balkans, due in, partly because of Russian and Greek Orthodox, but also because the Byzantine Empire, which was you know, Orthodox way back before there was even a schism between Orthodoxy and Catholicism, Kind of, it kind of stemmed from that. They were Orthodox before it was yeah, cool. Exactly. They were hipster Orthodoxes. <laughs> hipster Orthodox, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so on top of all these national identities in the Balkans, you have these three religions too. And of course, the religions are related in part to the national identities, but it's not perfectly aligned. So all of these are mixed up for different reasons, for historical reasons. Many of these groups don't trust each other because they were all either used against one another by the empires that surrounded the Balkans or just for their own nationalist objectives or for their own tribal objectives, like clan. There's a lot of really local allegiances within the Balkans as well. So suffice to say that as a result of all of this competition, both within the Balkans and in the Balkans from outside powers, that what happens in the Balkans tends to not stay in the Balkans. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the Balkans are sort of the the prime case study here for the complexity that is the idea of nationalism, right? Like, what does it mean to be a peoples and how do we form a nation of those peoples in particular when there isn't actually a good way to just draw a line and say, okay, now it's 99% this group, right? That's where things get complicated. Turns out it's much easier in a lot of places like Denmark and Norway and Finland, where it's like, okay, you know, they're all Finns, like just deal with it. And there are other places where it's more complicated. But generally, the idea of the nation state is that a certain peoples, be ethnic, ethno-sectarian, religious, whatever, rules itself and is not ruled by others. And this seems reasonable to most people. And this is what the Balkan Wars were all about, and it was the driver of many revolutions and wars in the 18th and 20th centuries. Not to say that nationalism was definitely like the evil that caused this. To a large extent, it was the oppression of these outside empires that caused it. Similarly, right, nationalism drove the 
colonies from Europe to throw, you know, especially the non-white colonies from Europe to throw off the yoke of their oppressors, right? Like nationalism caused the Vietnamese to say French, get out. It caused the Algerians to say French, get out. I keep picking on the French here. I guess it, you know, the Ethiopians kicked out the the Italians and et cetera. And like they got to rule themselves. And, you know, generally, I think most people would agree that that's better than being ruled by these external groups who don't have your best interests in mind. So that's nationalism. Now, we've defined nationalism as this like grouping of peoples generally by some demographic notion. And there's actually there's more than one, but there's one giant glaring exception to all of this sort of. And it's, of course, the United States. What is so interesting about the United States is that, you know, it's got a very short history and everyone that came over here, except for the natives who were largely ethnically cleansed and genocided into oblivion, but everyone who came over here came from somewhere else. And they came from that place for a reason, but it largely included a sense of giving up an old national identity, right? So you left England, you left Germany, you left whatever, and you came over, you said, I'm going to be American. We're going to make this happen. And so you're demographic ethnicity or religion just didn't matter nearly as much anymore. It's not that it didn't matter at all, but it's, it mattered less than ever before. And so people from all over the world showed up and continue to show up and basically said, F it, we're American now. Like this is who we are. And so what is the glue that held the United States together? If it wasn't one ethnic group, and generally the, the United States national identity is one of an ideal a vision, a sense of, purpose and self and that bound it together right we think of the 1950s and the american way we think of even before the revolution the colonies and being a city upon a hill the whole idea of the revolution was that we were forming a nation of you know like rights and ideals and all this stuff and that everyone rallied around that it's pretty cool now there is a shared language component which has been part of nationalism but even though we, we largely share a language, you sort of have to do that for convention's sake. English isn't what defines the American identity. We don't think of ourselves too much as an English people. In fact, we killed a bunch of English people in order to get that independence and, you know, went to war with them again in the early 1800s. So it really is that idea, that notion, that concept that makes Americans American. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Frequently, when new ethnic or national groups showed up, they were quite unwelcome. No one really liked the Germans at first, but then they adjusted and, and fit into the population. Then the Irish and the Scots came and no one liked them. And then everyone stopped caring. And then the Italians came and then the Chinese came. And over time, they were integrated into society more and more. And then, of course, there is another huge exception, which was the forced abduction of millions of Africans and that were brought as, and, and forced into slavery in the U.S. Clearly, these people were not included under this, at least not initially, under the idea of a free society. We've made progress, but that is another big exception. And in many ways, the U.S. has struggled and is still struggling to mix in its black population as a result. Now, the U.S. has had anti-immigrant parties arise whenever these new ethnic groups showed up in waves. They, they look different, but they all have some similarities, right? They see immigrants as a different peoples, as people with different customs. They kind of talk funny. They have weird languages that I don't understand. I don't really, I'm not familiar with their food, but it's usually pretty tasty. 
<laughs> and today, still don't like them, but man, they make yeah, good exactly. food. Exactly. And today, we have a lot of Hispanic immigrants going through this phase as well. Generally, the trend in the U.S. has been after a few generations, enough of that new ethnic or foreign national group is incorporated into U.S. culture that it stops being a huge issue. But the desire to keep whatever the current ethnic mix is as a representation of the quote-unquote true national identity, that, that is a recurring trend. It has been here, and it persists. Generally, though, the U.S. as a country, as a nation-state, does buck the trend of an ethnic or religious group of people existing in a particular place at a particular time, and that being the binding clue of the nation. One of the reasons nationalism gets a bad rap is we we think of it as, you know, we, we tend to think of the extreme version, but we also think of it as sort of unwelcoming to outsiders, right? And that in particular for Americans runs pretty counter to our identity, right? We say, you know, we are a nation of immigrants and, you know, Lady Liberty standing up there and give us your tired, your poor, your sick and all that good stuff. And so when we when we think of someone saying, hey, I want my country to be made up of and I want the voters and, and the rulers of that nation to to look like me and 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 seem like me and talk like me. You know, Americans tend to kind of like a lot of Americans, at least, tend to kind of go like, eh, I don't know. You know, obviously, given the news recently, like there are exceptions. The United States is a big place, you know, and and we've always had a minority of people that that don't like outsiders. But, you know, the United States is one of the few places where, you know, you, it's tough to look at someone and, and tell if they're American. Whereas, like, you tend to be able to go to Iceland to be like, oh, yeah, like, look at all these people. They're Icelandic. Like, they look super Icelandic and they sound Icelandic and they all eat, you know, really bland food and, and whales, right? And what's interesting is, you know, Europe was kind of, uh, or at least a lot of Europe was, was like, fairly well defined we had our borders you know swedes live here danes live here germans live here and now we have this immigration crisis in europe that is challenging the sort of more like status quo stable notion of nationalism like not in a long time right and that is an arab slash muslim migrant crisis coming from the wars in the middle east flowing into europe by the millions and they guess what? They have a different language. They have different customs, different religions. They look different. They make interesting food. And there is resistance. You know, and there are stories that people feel justify this resistance. For example, you know, in some places uh, where there are high Arab Muslim immigrant populations, sexual assault and rape have risen substantially. Sweden is one example. You know, and some of it is, you know, some of the resistance is the just the history that each of these countries have. You know, people in, in most of these nations in the past fought and died to throw off the yoke of empires or of rule by outsider. They built and forged a nation on the idea of being ruled by, quote, themselves. And for them, that means people that look like us, people that talk like us. And so the idea of like suddenly you have a substantial voting population that doesn't look like you or talk like you is like new and shocking. You know, I remember actually Xander shared it. There was a there was an example of Arab Muslim migrants going to Denmark. What's it? They're they're like being forced to they're sort of like being rounded up, put in one place and then like kind of forced to learn Danish in order to integrate correctly. Is that right? 
Yeah, the, the title of the article that was something about re-education camps, which sounds pretty heavy-handed to say the least. Yeah, so there's this like big challenge that that you know these these nations that have not had to be multicultural and multi-ethnic in the past are suddenly facing that when their entire identity, the entire history of them, their birth as a nation was this idea of them being this one people's ruling themselves. So it's hard. The ideal of the United States, however far we are from reaching it, and mass migration in Europe that's really changing the reality of, of demographics there is, I would say, building upon the notion of what can constitute a national identity. If national borders no longer need to be defined by ethnic or cultural groups that live there and have lived there and are tied with the land in some way or another, how should they be defined? There's a form of the ideal, which is to have no borders, no nations, just one people. Uh, This is a kind of a liberal ideal, not like liberal, liberal conservative, but like liberalism within like the international relations school of thought. And, And this, it really is probably a utopia that's out of reach until human nature changes in some way or another, or is confronted with a non-human identity that it, it needs to draw a contrast with. But um, this is this is one way in which the national identity of the U.S. is quite different than many other national identities that exist and have existed in history. And so I think one of the things that we can reconsider sort of walking out of this episode is that as we see, you know, ethnic groups, cultural groups start to change very quickly compared to the ways that they've changed in the past, you know, there's going to be, you know, we have to anticipate that there's going to be this friction. And also there's, you know, people are going to have to learn to adapt to this new reality. And, you know, it's, it's possible that the idea of being Hungarian or the idea of being, you know, Romanian or Polish, what that means is going to have to change. And, you know, it's important for a nation to have a sense of what it means to be of this nation. You need people to buy into the nation for it to work and for it to not fall apart. There's plenty of examples of where people stopped buying in and things devolved into tribalism, ethno-sectarianism. Iraq is a great example. People people didn't feel Iraqi and they probably never did to as strong an extent as they felt ethno-sectarian. And so you need people to buy into this notion, but... When you have this old way of defining it that's now being challenged and like, you know, to some extent eroded, there needs to be a new thing that pours in. And I think that's the thing that, you know, a lot of countries, including to some extent the United States, but in particular, a lot of countries that have their national identity formed by their, you know, largely their ethnic group or their religious group or cultural group. That is going to be a challenge for those countries going forward for, you know, the next the next few decades. And no solution to it necessarily in sight, but hope this context helps us think about why these challenges exist and, you know, what we're going to have to succeed to do as, as a people, as a global people to be able to get through them. And with that, dear listeners, remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. This is Eric signing off. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.